Seven years ago, I sat down in my laundry room in Cairo to make videos about how the state media was brainwashing the public. The Arab Spring was happening, and I wanted to help stick it to the man, just like the protesters did. Little did I know these videos would make me famous, make me a host of a TV comedy show with 40 million weekly viewers. I also had no idea how much outrage my videos, my TV shows, and eventually just my face would cause. The outrage mostly came from government supporters, be they Islamists or military apologists. People like me didn't exist in Egypt, at least not then. Some people used to call me the John Stewart of Egypt. That's because in the Middle East, we are still catching up to the Western world when it comes to free speech. I figured once I got to America, the Constitution would protect all kinds of speech, and it would be normal to speak your mind. Nobody would ever get outraged. Boy, was I wrong. After I came to America, I found that there are so many ways for people here to be offended. I'm what you might think of as liberal. I'm pro-choice. I'm all about inclusion and diversity. I think the government should tax the rich and help the poor. And I don't like the president. But in California, to be a proper liberal, it feels like you have to wake up every single day with a new reason to be offended. Today's episode is different from what I have been putting out there so far. My guest is a professor. He is not coming to us with the kind of outsider stories that we usually feature on this podcast. But he is definitely an outsider, at least when it comes to the dominant view in mostly liberal academic environment. The Democrats in the United States, for example, in the last election, decided that they would play identity politics, and they abandoned their traditional working-class base and were stomped well in the election, lost the election because of that, and I think they deserved it entirely. You might have heard of him. His name is Jordan Peterson. He is currently on a book tour, and I caught up with him in Louisville, Kentucky. Jordan is a professor of clinical psychology from the University of Toronto and also a sort of self-improvement guru. He opposed an attempt to include transgender identity in Canada's human rights law, which brought him a lot of attention, both positive and negative. So and I don't so like under, these made-up words, Z and Zer and that sort of thing. Okay, what about, they're not all made-up words, quote-unquote made-up yeah. words. For example, they is one of them, yeah, to, but to we, speak to an individual yes. as they. Right, but we can't dispense with the distinction between singular and plural. Jordan has been accused of being all kinds of bad things. A sexist, a fascist, the product of white male privilege. But Jordan insists he is really all about free speech. He's got his own podcast, and he doesn't like political correctness. So, I was very much looking forward to this conversation. During our conversation, he talked about a lot of things that I, as a new immigrant here, am still trying to understand. It got a little bit, um, academic. So hold on to your pocket protectors. Jordan and I talked about things like identity politics, transgender pronouns, Ukrainian farmers, Democrats and whether white privilege is a real thing. But as a fellow podcaster, the first thing I wanted to know from Jordan was how he liked my intro. I, th I thought it was uh, stupendous, absolutely stupendous. I'm Basim Yusuf. This is Remade in America, presented by CAFE. 
I am a terrible cook. This may sound old-fashioned, but my wife is the main reason that I don't starve. But she's traveling this summer, so I have to feed myself. Luckily, some basket showed up just in time. Now you can explore new flavors, cuisines, and ingredients every week. Like me, you can also get delicious recipes and organic produce delivered right to your door. All thanks to Sunbasket. Now you get more options than ever. Just go to the Sunbasket app and pick from 18 recipe options every week. You can eat vegan, like me, or choose paleo, gluten-free, and many other options. And these recipe options, they are so easy. Even a dum-dum like me can follow them. I just made something called Moroccan spiced chickpeas with wilted chard, preserved lemon and garlic toast. Before some basket, I could only make things called baby carrots and glass of water. Some basket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh organic produce. Go to sumbasket.com slash remade today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sumbasket.com slash remade for $35 off. sumbasket.com slash remade. Okay, back to Remade in America presented by CAFE. Today, we're talking with controversial professor, psychologist, and podcaster, Jordan Peterson. I started our conversation by asking Jordan basically how he became who he is today. You are a professor of clinical psychology. Let's start with a very stereotypical question in psychology. Tell me about your childhood. Well, I grew up in a small town in in northern Canada. I had very good parents uh, who were behind me all the way and still are. It was dark and cold way up north, and so that presented a certain amount of challenge, I suppose, to keep myself properly amused when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, I read a lot. I was interested in many of the things I'm still interested in, totalitarianism being among the foremost of those. I started reading Huxley and Orwell and and, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, people like that, when I was about 13 or so. I had a librarian in, in our junior high school that kept feeding me great books. And so that started to shape how I was looking at the world. Here's the first thing that surprised me about Jordan. He didn't really grow up hating the left. In fact, as a teenager, Jordan was a member of a leftist kind of socialist party. I was really interested in human malevolence and ideological tyranny. And what I noticed with the NDP, the socialist party, was that although the leadership seemed to be genuinely committed in many regards to the well-being of the working class, let's say. The party activists were not, as far as I could tell. I didn't really have any respect for them. They seemed peevish and irritable and resentful and angry, uh, working against, perhaps, the successful rather than for the dispossessed. And at the same time, I was working at this little college that I attended for the Board of Governors there, and there were a lot of more conservative types who had been appointed by the government who had started their own businesses, often from scratch, because we were out on the frontier, and so it wasn't like people came there with wealth and built something out of nothing. And I had a lot of respect for them personally, even though at that point I didn't seem to share their politics, and so that confused me. I admired the people who didn't share my political views and didn't admire the people who did, and so that was one of the things that really made me think long and hard about what the true motivations of were for people who were claiming to speak on behalf of the dispossessed. When I was preparing for this conversation, I watched Jordan really tear into some interviewers. And while I wasn't afraid to take him on, there was one topic that I knew might really incite a strong reaction for him. 
transgender pronouns. But I lucked out. Before I decided to bring it up, Jordan did it for me. He was talking about his relationship with the media. I've had many, many supporters. I mean, the Post Media Group in Canada, which is a consortium of 200 newspapers, came out formally uh, on the side of my stance against Bill C-16 in Canada, which was the compelled speech legislation that I was objecting to. I wasn't objecting to transgender rights. That's complete nonsense. I was objecting to the fact that our government dared to bring in legislation that compelled voluntary speech, even though no precedent for that had ever been established in the history of English common law. So it was actually an objection to a kind of totalitarian move on the part of the government and not an objection to the rights of an oppressed group. Yeah, for our, li- for our listeners, just like a quick review of a C-16 bill, this was a bill that was proposed that would make it discrimination or hate speech if you do not use the pronouns designated to certain transgender uh, type. And I think there was like, what, f- 15, 16 pronouns? Z, no, there's a lot more year, than that. There's about 70 yeah, of them. And, 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 if you don't use, and if you don't use them and you only use he or she, that will fall under the law, I hate speech. And I think people accuse you of being anti-transgender, but you defended that and you said, no, I believe that language should evolve naturally and dynamically, but not through law or legislation coming from uh, from above, from yeah, the there's government. there's no excuse from, for the that... government. There's no excuse for the government to compel voluntary speech. Your own Supreme Court in 1942 decided that that was unconstitutional. So it's already mm-hmm. law in your country. Um, and to that, do that n- under my the... country yet. Oh, well, sorry. And, and the, <laughs> sorry. Right, right, right. Um, and oh, it's already law in the United States. Um, There's no excuse to introduce compelled speech legislation under the guise of a false compassion. And the legislation was a lot worse than that. I mean, it's, it's very subtle because the bill itself was only a few paragraphs long. But I read all the policy documents from the Ontario Human Rights Commission. And the federal government had said explicitly that the legislation would be interpreted in light of those policies. And those policies are absolutely dreadful. For example, they build a social constructionist view of gender into the law, and the social constructionist view of gender insists that all the differences between men and women, and I mean all of them, even the biological differences, are in some sense social constructs, and that gender exists as a continuum. And, you know, if you want to put that forward as a sociological proposition, well, go go right ahead, even though I think it flies in the face of of decades of solid science, Um, but... To institute that as law is absolutely inexcusable. Despite Jordan's well-publicized opposition, the bill passed. But in the process, Jordan became, well, really famous. Almost overnight. When we come back, we will get back in the ring to discuss identity politics and to explore topics like whether Democrats are actually just as divisive as Republicans and whether white privilege is a useful term. Spoiler alert, Jordan and I disagree. So don't leave us. Hiring is challenging. Really, choosing anything is, even a podcast to be on. I bet if Jordan had ZipRecruiter, he would have found a much more experienced podcast host to talk to. There's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. 
a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash remade. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. And it won't take long either. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash remade. That's ziprecruiter.com slash R-E-M-A-D-E. ziprecruiter.com slash remade. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I used to only sleep at night, but that was before Casper. Now I sleep all the time. I can't help it. And no, I don't have the flu. I just have a great mattress. Support for Remade in America comes from Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience, one night at a time. At Casper, mattresses are perfectly designed for humans. They are engineered to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Vavavoom. Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amount of both sink and bounce. Casper offers free shipping in the U.S. and Canada, and if you aren't completely satisfied, Casper makes it easy to return your mattress at no charge and no hassle. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com remade and using promo code remade at checkout. That's casper.com remade and promo code remade for $50 towards select mattresses. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, back to Remade in America, presented by CAFE. Today, we're talking with controversy magnate Jordan Peterson. Liberals, Democrats, they really don't like Jordan. And he has some thoughts about them, too. The Democrats in the United States, for example, in the last election, decided that they would play identity politics, and they abandoned their traditional working-class base and were stomped well in the election, lost the election because of that, and I think they deserved it entirely. I agree with you that the Democrats deserve losing the elections. And speaking about the Democrats playing identity politics, I I saw a very uh, interesting interview for you on Bill Maher when you said that America is more divided than ever and you blamed it on the Democrats for playing identity politics because they are putting people in groups and that's why dividing people. Is that true? No, no, I didn't say that America is more divided than ever because I don't think that's mm. true. Um, mm. America was, has been plenty divided at many times. I mean, and so... I apologize for I, I that, okay. the first part. Maybe I was focused more on the second part when you said that the Democratic Party in the last elections kind of like they, 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 they divide people by using identity politics. Is that true? Well, I think that, that using identity politics does divide people. What I was concerned about more particularly with on the Bill Maher show is that the, the formulation of the United States as a battleground between the left and the right, which is part of this polarization, is going to be con- counterproductive in the long run because all of you Americans need each other. Like, it's your neighbors you're talking about when you're appalled by the either the Democrats or the Republicans. You have to live with those people. And, you know, as I said already, we need a left and a right. 
And a, a healthy dialogue between the political types is necessary, which is partly why I'm an advocate for free speech. I, I, I totally agree with you. But the thing is, when I was watching, you know, Bill Maher, and, and then I, I see the blame going towards the left about, like, dividing people, and, I, and I'm still in my mind, it resonates how people on the right were the ones who were calling Mexican rapists or Muslims terrorists or kind of, like, putting down people of color. It's just like maybe this was a... Um, a defense mechanism because one party is kind of like basically out loud uh, oh. rejecting diversity, rejecting people of color. So the other party come to Papa. I'm here. We are all here together. Black, white, brown, yellow. So, I mean, maybe this was a reaction because I think playing identity politics in the way Democrats cannot be as bad as calling a certain groups rapists. Oh, or yeah, it can terrorists. be as bad. It can be absolutely as bad. Because identity politics, the left can go too far and has gone too far many times. Now that, and in, in, in its subst- in, in an overwhelmingly catastrophic way. So make no mistake about it, it can be as bad. That doesn't mean that your point isn't well taken. Obviously, people can go too far on the right, and they do all the time. You know, the right-wingers can be xenophobic. I mean, it's part of the pathology of the right. There's a pathology of the left and a pathology of the right. And... Hopefully what you do with dialogue is you keep the political wings from pushing too far into the extreme end. Now, the thing is, we already know where the extreme end is for the right-wingers, and you, all, you just identified it, right? When you start to make claims of racial or ethnic su- superiority, especially when you start making those claims in a manner that produces uh, oppression and, and violence, then obviously you've gone too far on the right. And, but I think, I think that reasonable right-wingers have already figured that out and probably have since World War II. Now, but we haven't done a good job of putting parameters on the left. Now, we know that the left can become unbelievably, catastrophically um, tyrannical. I mean, if the evidence from the Soviet Union and Maoist China and Vietnam and Cambodia and Venezuela and Cuba isn't enough, then I'm, I'm afraid for people for whom that isn't enough, there's no teaching them anything. But we don't know exactly when the left goes too far. It's not easy to point to something. You know, you can point to claims of racial or ethnic superiority on the right, and that seems to make a pretty good dividing line. But it's more subtle on the left. And so it's a harder technical problem to decide when care for the dispossessed and worry about oppression starts to tilt towards tyrannical uniform ideology. So I've been trying to puzzle that out, but it's, it's hard. I don't know, this is around where Jordan started losing me. But I will give him credit for one thing. He did make me think, I'm a stubborn guy. But when someone makes an interesting point, even if my initial reaction is that it is also a despicable conclusion, I find myself thinking about it. Maybe I feel threatened. I mean, if another smart person feels this way and can explain himself, does that mean I'm wrong? I don't know. That's the power of a good conversation a thoughtful debate. I'd like to share another topic about which Jordan feels strongly. You have a, a big problem with the term white privilege. I think it's an appalling term. First of all, I think it's, it's part of the identity politics issue because it, it yes. makes race the fundamental category of evaluation, which is extraordinarily dangerous. I think that it, it first of all, I would also say that much more prosaically, it's majority privilege 
It's not white a majority privilege. privilege. Well, of course, every society. Privilege. Well, yes. every society privileges yes. its majority. That's the whole point of the damn society. And of yes. course, you have to ensure that along with that majority privilege, let's say that there are uh, allowances made for the rights of the minorities. That that's 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 something written into every constitution worth its salt. But to conflate majority with race is a very dangerous thing to do. When talking about the evils of assigning privilege, Jordan likes to rely on a particular example. Bear with me here. It's a little complicated and happened a long time ago, but it's an important rabbit hole for us to jump in together. To show the dangers of accusations of privilege, Jordan points to the persecution of Kulak farmers in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 1930s. These rich, privileged farmers, according to Jordan, were rounded up, robbed, and killed by the collectivists, by Stalin's henchmen. And as a result, six million people in Ukraine would die because of a famine directly caused by the Kulak persecution. Jordan likes to argue that they were persecuted because their success marked them as privileged. He blames the Ukrainian famine on the idea of privilege. It wasn't just the uh, Kulaks, it was the religious people. They were all rounded up. The socialists, Mm. they were all rounded up. The students, because they had student privilege. Anybody who had uh, anything vaguely approximating a middle-class background, and they weren't only rounded up, their whole families were rounded up because of their privilege. It's very, very, very dangerous to assign guilt to individuals on the basis of their group status. There's no excuse for that. Absolutely no excuse for that. But Jordan left out a very important point. Stalin had a clear political motive. The Kulaks were persecuted because they were a threat to his rule. Jordan just sort of skips over that and instead inappropriately uses the Kulak example to fan the flames of white fear today. These farmers were not simply murdered as the result of being identified as privileged. I told Jordan how I felt about his convenient analysis. Let me kind of like imagine if I am a white person and I'm hearing you speak and you're saying that and you're comparing white privilege, the use of identity politics as in white privilege with what happens with millions of Kulags and uh, and Ukrainians being killed uh, almost a century ago. I would I would be terrified as a white person. I would be terrified. And I would, I was like, oh my God, they're coming to me. I mean, they, they are going to use this identity politics to come to me. But when, when you read the history of what happens really in the Ukrainian famine, I feel that you kind of like took that a little bit out of context because the reason that that happened, that basically Stalin imposed a Soviet system of land management known as collectivization. And the reason for that was to cripple the Kulaks because they tried to stage a coup and separate from Russia. And then he started to round up 5,000 Ukrainian scholars, scientists, culture, and religious leaders. And they were arrested after falsely accused of plotting an armed revolt. So what happened was that was... That happened continually. That happened continually. I mean... If it was yeah, just but, the Kulaks, but, 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 but then he, that would be fine. But, he, but there were millions of people rounded up. The Kulaks were just the beginning. So, yes, I'm and, sure. And but, the but, but the thing is, that, 
but oh, yeah. he was round. They were rounded up and they took away their privilege and took away their lands because he wanted to cripple any future revolt against him. That so was, that was his, the, the, that this, was his rationalization. But he used that rationalization for rounding virtually of, of for course, about twenty-five million people up. Absolutely, but it's like Hitler using a certain uh, uh, like uh, rationalization, saying that the Jews are the cause of all misery, and let's round them up. But the thing is, when you when when you compare two things in history, like that horrible things that happened there, and the use of white privilege, isn't that a little bit extreme? This was the act of Stalin, a totalitarian government with all of the weapons, all of the means to kind of and the propaganda to ri- make people rise against other brothers because they had money and because they had land. I mean, context is important. Don't you agree? When you, when, when I say, for example... Well, then that, why uh, call it white privilege? Why bring race into it? You, you explain it. Why are they bothering well, to bring race into well, it? Well, you, you just said it is about majority privilege and it just happens that whites are the majority. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you get to conflate majority with race. You don't get to yeah, do that. And, and I, I would know, say you the, don't do that without I, being malicious. You do that because you're I, malicious. It might be, but like put yourself in the in the seats of people on the other side. Every day you see a black man being killed because like he reached out in his uh, glove compartment or two black men in Starbucks being removed because they didn't order this. When you have a guy, a, a swimmer who raped a woman and he was just suspended from swimming team and a guy and another black man who got like a prison for life. When you have like the most people who are incarcerated in prisons, 85% are black people. You cannot really separate race from this. Look, there's no doubt that that a certain amount of prejudice exists in every system, and, and our system as well, the systems of the West. But that doesn't mean you get to be simple-minded about the solutions, and because then you can make it worse rather than better, and it doesn't mean that you get to bring careless accusations of racial privilege and play identity politics in an attempt to solve these problems. Like, the fact that the problems are complex and they exist doesn't justify simple-minded solutions, especially solutions that have been shown to be absolutely counterproductive in the past. And so ignorance is no excuse, especially if you think that you're out to change the world. If you're out to change the world, then you better be more sophisticated in your viewpoints or all you're going to do is cause trouble. And so I know, but but, but but people in general are simple minded. They will think that the left, the left are coming to me with pitchforks. I don't think they are. Look, I don't think they are so simple minded. I'm I've been speaking to large audiences for a whole year and I have all these videos online and those videos are not simple. They're unbelievably complicated, and millions of people are watching them. So I think the average person is a lot less simple-minded than you might think, and they're perfectly capable of following a sophisticated argument, but they aren't presented with one very often. So I have so lots the, of faith so may, so in the maybe ability the same of the people, common person to, to see his way through this. So maybe the same people who are not simple-minded, when they hear white privilege, they can distinguish that this is white privilege that is directed to the certain injustice that is happening to black people. And they do not consider that as an attack on a whole race. If you consider that people do not have that much of a simple mind and they can can actually like know what is being given to them. When I hear white privilege, I don't hate hate white people. As a matter of fact, most of my friends are white. I love, I, I finally said it. Even my producers are white. 
I, I use white privilege and I don't have any hate or any prejudice against my white producers. I love them. But the thing is, I, when, I, when, I, when I listen to white privilege, I know exactly what does it mean. The same way that the complex mind people listen to your uh, uh, lectures and they know what you mean. So uh, maybe it's kind of, you cannot say like, all right, people who are using white privilege are simple or people who are listening to my lectures are more complex. I think, I think that there's no excuse to use race as a marker for, for the, the existence of, of systemic inequality. And I think it's very dangerous to do so. And it may be the case that there are some people who are sophisticated enough to, to understand what that really means, but I'm perfectly content to stick with my interpretation of it. I don't like it. I think that it's extraordinarily dangerous to attribute to the individual the sins of a group. I, I think it's... It's, I can't think of anything more dangerous than you can, that you can do, and I do think it's one of the markers of the left going too far. It's carelessness with terminology, and you have to be careful with your words, especially if you're dealing with very complex problems. So the whole white privilege thing, no, it's a non-starter as far as I'm concerned. I guess we know how Jordan feels about white privilege. And as I'm sure you could tell from the conversation, this is a place where I strongly disagree with Jordan. I think white privilege does exist. And when Jordan, a white guy, tells people that it's bad to talk about the privilege that benefits him, it sounds self-serving and discourages a free flow of ideas. And to tell you the truth, when you use a certain historical event and take it out of context, it calls your philosophy into question. To make my point, I'm going to talk about a privilege that benefits me. Brown privilege. What's brown privilege, you ask? Is that an oxymoron? Basically, it means I can do certain things, say certain things that I know I can get away with because I am not white. For example, just this week, my producer, Vikram, he's another brown guy, he pointed out to me that I told Jordan Peterson that both of my producers are white. Even my producers are white. I, I use white privilege and I don't have any hate or any prejudice against my white producers. I love them. Vikram said, Basim, I'm not white. And I said, yes, you are. And he said, but I'm Indian. And I told him, nah, you just look Indian. And the truth is, he reminds me culturally of the white people I know, not the Indian people. I honestly don't think that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just true. He grew up in America and he chose. And you know what happened after I told him? We both laughed. He conceded that I had a point and we had a fun conversation about brown privilege, about the fact that we were allowed to have that conversation. Now imagine if our other producer, Jonathan, who is white, had told Vikram, nah, you don't look Indian. We'd already be on ZipRecruiter looking for a new Jonathan. Jordan Peterson is sensitive about the term white privilege. He thinks it's discriminatory. It's dangerous. But I have to say... To tell people they shouldn't use a term like white privilege, it is a little bit hypocritical if you ask me. Everyone is entitled not only to have an opinion, but to say it out loud too. And that is one thing I agree with Jordan. I believe that white privilege exists and brown privilege too. So I know I said this wasn't a typical episode of my podcast. And I think if you've made it this far, you will agree. But I thought it would be useful to treat Jordan like the rest of my guests by bringing up my favorite topic. I didn't grow up here. I'm not white. I have an accent, obviously. So do you, as a Canadian living in Canada, living in North America, with like you're well established, do you f sometimes feel like an outsider because of your views? 
Oh, yes and no. I mean, I would say I feel like an outsider because of my views, but not because of the political views. I mean, I have views that are a lot, what would you say, more out of the ordinary than my political views. You know, I'm basically a mainstream classic liberal in most ways, although I'm a traditionalist in some sense, partly because as a social scientist, I've learned, like most educated social scientists, that good intentions transformed into policy seldom produce the outcomes that are desired. And so you have to be very careful when you do large-scale social uh, engineering, let's say, because um, of the law of unintended consequences. But I don't feel particularly alienated because of my viewpoints. And there you have it. Jordan Peterson doesn't feel like an outsider. And that's all for our conversation with Jordan Peterson. As always, I learned a lot from this chat. But as I mentioned at the top, this was not a typical episode. Frankly, Jordan's politics and his rhetoric are the opposite of our first few guests. And he presents what a lot of people think are insider points of view, including his opposition to the use of the term white privilege. We had some intense disagreements. I only played some of them for you, but I also found myself agreeing with some of Jordan's points of view. In particular, I think free speech is a big deal and agree that we have to protect it so that people from different political persuasions can continue to learn from each other, even as we disagree with each other. Also, I'm sort of new at this, at interviewing people. I'll confess, I was nervous before calling Jordan. See, I did a lot of prep for this interview, read articles, watch videos. And let me tell you, Jordan can hold his own in an interview. He dressed down all sorts of people who tried to take him on. Now, I'm not saying I'm the second coming of Anderson Cooper. Anderson, if you're listening, come on my show. But my producers were so proud of me after this interview. They made me a little present, and we are going to play it for you now. It's all the times Jordan agreed with me or told me that I made a good point. Hit it, guys! Well, it's perfectly reasonable. That doesn't mean that your point isn't well taken. Your idea that the concerns are more local, I think, is in part true. And although I do think that there is some reasonable objection in your, in your discussion. Oh, that's a good... That, well, no, look, that, that's a good objection. Ah, that's nice. The power of editing. I will play that right before I fall asleep on my Casper mattress tonight. And, to be fair to Jordan, I also did my fair share of agreeing with him. If you have thoughts on this episode or just have a question for me, you can tweet at me or call me at 785-4BASIM or send an email to remade.cafe.com. You might just end up on the show. In fact, this is usually where we play you a voicemail, but this week I would like to read you an email we got from a reader that just made my week. It's about her reaction to last week's episode featuring lesbian comedian Cameron Esposito. The email writer asks us for a reason that will become obvious not to use her name. Here it is. Dear Basim, I am subscribed to your Remade in America podcast. Many of the episodes have been very inspiring and informative for me. But this latest episode has touched my heart. I am a closeted bisexual and know that many of the people in my life would not understand and accept me if they knew. I too grew up in the Midwest 
and misunderstood my friendships with women before meeting people who shared my sexuality. I'm still looking for an opportunity to come out, and Cameron's story was a fantastic encouragement. Hearing the success stories of parents being open and accepting gives me hope that my own story might not explode in my face. You see, at a certain point of my life, I did not accept people who were different than me. I did not accept people who had different opinions, different orientation, like Cameron, or the lovely person who sent this email. It took me time, and I had to learn a lot about the world and about humanity. Now, looking back, I don't understand why can't we accept people for who they are. People who oppose this point of view, they always come to me, what are you going to do if your daughter, if your son came out? What are you going to do? And I say, aren't they still my children? Shouldn't I be loving them no matter what? Are we putting conditions on how to love people, our children, our loved ones, our friends? You see, by not accepting people for who they are, we are making them outsiders to us, even our own children. We let our beliefs, our ideologies, dictate how we feel about other human beings. And that is terrible. For whoever wrote this email, thank you for this note. And I wish you happiness and peace of mind. If you have an outsider story or a question for me or want to suggest a topic that we cover on this show, tweet at me or call me at 785-4BASIN. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every good review makes it easier for new listeners to find the show. Remade in America is presented by Cafe and produced by Neon Hum Media. Our show producer is Vikram Patel. Editorial support from Ashley Click. Production assistant from Palavi Kutumasu. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Our theme song is by Beethoven Music. And special thanks to Jeff Eisenman, Brian Carmel, and the nice lady who sent us that email. Next time on Remade in America. You're so aware that you're brown and you're a woman when a world is telling you that you're a certain way. How do you not internalize that narrative for yourself? That's next time on Remade in America. I'm Basim Yusuf. Talk to you soon.